my father, Justin Roberts, passed away eight years ago this spring, so there's a number of people uh, in the auditorium who wouldn't have been acquainted with him. A number of you would have been as well. Dad was a, a big buff of history, and particularly World War II history. I think that was a result of him coming of age during that conflict and having two brothers who were several years older that served, one in the Army Air Corps in Italy and the other in the South Pacific in the Navy. And uh, so as a young man, he was very intrigued by the heroes that he perceived his older brothers to be. And, and that fascination with that conflict stayed with him through his life. It is, it is passing. He had a number of books on World War II history that, that came my way. And, and uh, you've heard that old expression, the, the, the apple doesn't roll far from the tree. You know, some people apply it to me as the nut didn't roll far from the bush. Um, but I was equally fascinated, and, and having, those, having those books was uh, a pleasure of mine to kind of connect with Dad in a way, but connected a common interest that we shared. And one of those books was entitled The Ghost Army. You see the slide there before you. And that, uh, that emblem you see there on the side is the actual patch for the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, and they served in the European theater, and their intention was, with a group of about 1,100 men, to masquerade as many as 30,000 men, about two divisions worth, and they would go into various segments of the battle line in Europe, in France, in Belgium, in Germany, uh, throughout the, Euro- the, the Northwest Europe campaign, and, and be in places where either the line was weak, and they wanted to give the Germans the impression that there was a lot of strength there, or conversely, to, to make the German army believe that there was an attack imminent in an area. And they did this through several ways, and, and some of these are kind of shown here. Uh, they, they would have these inflatable tanks, and you see there in the upper, let's see, that'd be the upper left-hand corner, you see six men carrying around the Sherman tank. So either American soldiers were supermen, or there was something else going on here. And uh, so they'd have these inflatables that they would set out, going so far as to drive bulldozers and stuff around to, to fake the tracks in case there was an aerial reconnaissance going on. And they set up fake artillery units, um, just all kinds of mechanized equipments to give the impression that there were units there. But beyond that, they would have these sound systems set up on vehicles. And you see that in the lower right-hand corner, a massive sound system, so they could blare out the noise and the activity of these mechanized units moving around and soldiers making noise. And then further, they would, they would instigate all kinds of radio traffic and signals and such like that, giving orders and commands and passing all sorts of dispatches around. And so the enemy would be deceived into thinking that there was something going on that wasn't really happening. And in fact, World War II General Wesley Clark said, every army practices deception. If they don't, they can't win, and they know it. So this wasn't the only unit that did this, but this was one that remained highly classified until about the 1970s even, uh, far after uh, the end of World War II. And if you think about that statement from General Clark, every army practices deception. If they don't, they can't win, and they know it. 
That's true in, in physical warfare. Why wouldn't it be true in spiritual warfare? And in fact, go all the way back. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, Eve, when confronted with taking the fruit from Satan, said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Serpent deceived me. Satan was well aware of this. <laughs> Satan was well aware of this. We talked in class this morning. Thank you, Joe, bringing up. Partial truth works. It, it's been said that a half-truth is far more effective than a lie. And Satan started that way back when. And so the idea of deception has always been present, and it's always been a challenge for us. We're warned about it. Paul and James, apostles, both write these specific words, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There's various ways in which it happens, but the bottom line is, is we've been warned about this. Deception is present. Deception is going after us. It's a tool that Satan uses to get to us. And we can be deceived in many ways. We can be deceived by others. Satan's already mentioned back in the garden, but it's a theme throughout scriptures. Uh, Paul, in, in, in his letter to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, talks about this. He reflects back on that, saying that just as Adam was deceived by the serpent's coming, your minds may be somehow led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then Revelation, as John sees this vision of the future and anticipates what's coming, he sees these images of Satan as the deceiver going out in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 20. But we're deceived by those around us as well, by sinners. Paul, again, he warns the Ephesians, he warns the Timothy, not to be deceived by those around you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And, and he said and, and to Timothy, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a state that we, we're aware of. But it goes even beyond that. We have, to, we have the warnings of false teachers attempting to deceive us. A, a theme of the class this morning from Second Peter chapter 2. Those that are trying to lead us astray by teaching us things that they ought not teach. In, in Colossians... In Colossians, Paul writes, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. There are going to be those out there who allege to be, appear to be a part of the fellowship. Uh, Christians who will create arguments, create discussions, create, uh, create teaching that will deceive us that will lead us astray. In, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. In 1 Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And it goes even worse than that because Paul warns against false apostles, those claiming, those claiming to have the direct revelation from the Spirit, from God, to know their message, and they're going out deceiving. Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. False apostles aren't bad enough. Jesus warns against false messiahs in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. 
And then in verse 11, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And in 24, for false prophets and false messiahs will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. John warns against deceivers in, in his letter, uh, calling the deceiver the Antichrist. You know, we have a tendency to try to make that into something. Modern Christendom as a whole has made the Antichrist into a specific, almost mythical figure. John has no such indication of that. John says simply, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the world, as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver. And the Antichrist, who is the deceiver? Who is the Antichrist? The deceiver. The one who disavows Christ, who does not acknowledge Christ. So all these elements are out there. All these things are pulling on us, trying to drag us away. Satan's behind it all. But there's a whole lot of things going on there that push us into paths that we shouldn't take, into beliefs that we should not have. But somewhat more insidious than this, though, is that we can be self-deceived. Have you ever heard the old expression, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? You know, we deceive ourselves too. And in some respects, that's a bigger problem. It goes all the way back. Uh, Jeremiah warns the people of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian siege. He said, uh, this is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Don't deceive yourself. You're surrounded by this host of enemies out there. You're you're really, really worried that the city is going to fall to them. But what you're hoping for is they're just going to go away. They're just going to leave you alone. Something's going to happen. There's going to be some sort of invention. It's all going to be all right, but you're deceiving yourselves. You're fooling yourself. It's not going to happen that way. Don't deceive yourself. There's a false wisdom that comes with self-deception. In 1 Corinthians 3.18, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. But that's preceded by do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself if you think you're wise. There's a humility that has to be involved with this. And the humility takes us right into the pride section. Paul warns the Galatians, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Pride has been called by C.S. Lewis the great sin, the sin that underlies all other sins. And it's hard to argue with him. Because so much of what we do is based on our pride, our own self-values, our own self-belief. And that self-belief leads us often in paths of deception. Where we go places, do things, involve ourselves with things that we ought not be involved with. And so in, in pride we deceive ourselves. Pleasure is one of the big things. Uh, Titus chapter 3 uh, verse 3. At one time we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Doesn't this really just come down to doing what we want? Who doesn't want to have a good time? 
but so often this leads us astray because of the elements that we think of having to, uh, uh, that we think of as having a good time are elements that lead us in paths contrary to what God wills in paths contrary to the things that we ought to be doing that we need to be doing that we know that God wants us to do and so our passions our pleasures deceive us lead us astray and into other things and, and so ultimately deceiving leads or de- being deceived leads us to corruptions from from Ephesians chapter 4 you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires the corruption that happens is moving away from God not being not being in relationship with him not knowing him even is what deception leads us to it leads us well, as well into a hardening of the heart. So the Hebrew writer is writing to Christians when he says, Be, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How easy is it to do something a second time after you've already done it the first time? You know what they say about habits? Repetition is the key to developing habit. If you do it enough times, an act becomes a habit. If you do it once, you just did it once. Say you want to start exercising. So you go out and take a walk today. Have you developed a habit? If you do it tomorrow, have you developed a habit? If you do it again Tuesday, have you developed a habit? It's going to take a lot more than that. But you know what happens? With repetition, it becomes easier to do. If that's true with good habits, wouldn't it be equally true with bad habits? Wouldn't it be equally true with sinful behavior? And that's what the Hebrew writer warns against, that you can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If sin wasn't attractive, if sin didn't have a desirable characteristic in, in some way, Would it be really tempting to do? Do you engage in behaviors, do you willingly engage, engage in behaviors that you really don't care for, don't enjoy, don't want to do? Some of you are going to say, well, I'm going to go to work Monday. <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't count <laughs> because you do like the paycheck that comes at the end of the week, right? But the reality is, is, Sin's deceitfulness is based on, boy, this is going to do something for me. It's going to be enjoyable. It's going to give me pleasure. It's going to give me satisfaction in some way. And that's what the Hebrew writer warns against. That's deceitful. That's something that you can't go to. The reality, though, is we can look at this and we can understand that deceitfulness is out there. We can understand that Satan wants to lure us into things that we ought not to be engaged in. We can understand that there are people out there that have been placed in our lives by Satan who are going to try to entice us into things that we don't need to be involved with. We can even understand that our own desires, our own inclinations, are going to take us places where we don't need to go. We can know all this. But the problem often is doing something about it. I mean, if Paul could wrestle with it, 
read Romans chapter 7, if Paul could wrestle with it, I'm deceiving myself if I don't think I'm going to wrestle with it. You're deceiving yourself if you think you're not going to wrestle with it. Because i got to believe Paul, as an inspired apostle, knew exactly what he was talking about, and he shared those thoughts in Romans 7 because he knew anybody that was going to read that following was undergoing the same issue, was encountering the same problem that he, he was. And Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. That's tough. But, but James is going to take it a step further. James is going to challenge us and say, look, you know what to do. You know what to do, but are you doing it? James says simply, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I, I listen all day. I'm be, I'm be sitting down there. Um, if somebody else is up here this morning and listening to it, you can be sitting there listening to it right now. You can hear, you could participate in Bible class with, with uh, John or, or with Rob uh, this morning. You can listen to it all. And if it just kind of goes right by you, you hear it, and you don't do anything about it, what have you done? James said you deceived yourselves. You showed up. Good for you. Is that the end of it? Is that all? James is going to go further in, at the, towards the end of the book. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. What does knowing good get you? Nothing. Knowledge. You're a little smarter than you were before. If you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, it's sin, according to James. Failing to act on things. Knowing is one part of it. Doing is another part of it. There's, some, there's a couple of quotes that I saw on this uh, from Tony Robbins. Knowing is not enough. You must take action. From Richard Biggs, the greatest gap in life is the one between knowing and doing. From I didn't put this one up there, but you can take this from me. This is one I like to use. It ain't the knowing, it's the doing. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? There's all sorts of things I know about how I ought to live my life. And there's all sorts of those things that I know about how I ought to live my life that I don't really do. That's a big gap. That's a huge problem. And that's where the challenge becomes. Because the challenge is not just knowing it. The challenge is actually doing something with it. In Luke chapter 24... Or excuse me, in Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is, is speaking here and he says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that again because these words really need to sink in for us. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. What have you been given? What have you been given? You're here this morning. I'm blessed by your presence. It is good to see you here this morning. But you know something? You're here because you have been given much. If you hadn't been given much, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. You have been given a knowledge of God, the Father. You have been given a knowledge of Jesus Christ, His Son. You've been given a knowledge of the salvation that is afforded by his sacrifice on the cross. We've memorialized that. We've celebrated that. Thanks, Mark, for your words wherever. There you are, Mark. Thank you for your words this morning. We have been given much. Each and every one of us has been given much. We have an awareness of what God's will is, what God's desire for us is. Jesus himself said, there's something that comes from that. There's something that comes from that. You will have a demand placed on you for having much given to you. Are you ready to accept that challenge? Because that challenge is what we have to be about. Accepting that challenge is what we need to do something about and I'm going to tell you, that this, the challenge that we really have right now is to overcome all the deception that's been presented to us. And the deception that we've had to deal with primarily, and I'm speaking to those in the room right now and to myself as well, the challenge that we have is to accept what Christ has placed before us to be doing. And this, the deception that we've led, have been led into is not doing it. It's not doing it. Uh, thank you, Derek, for the reading this morning. When Peter writes of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion... That conjures up an image of something that's really obvious and really direct, really easy to see. I'm guessing that Satan's activities now are a lot more subtle than that in many ways with many people. I'm going to suggest to you that the way Satan gets after us now is probably not confronting us with great grand sins but rather challenging us into complacency, into lethargy, into just not really doing the things that we're called to do. I don't think, how many of you have been really seriously tempted to murder lately? I'm guessing not very many of you. I'm really hoping not very many of you. Um, you know, in his book, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis um, is, is the senior tempter, Screwtape, provides instruction to his young protege, Wormwood. He said, look, 
getting Christians away from, uh, getting away from Christendom isn't really about making them murderers or adulterers or thieves or whatever. It's, it's just to make them content and complacent where they are. Just make them comfortable. Make them comfortable. And I fear that's where we are. When we look around, have we kind of rationalized where we are? I'm a pretty good place. Look at the people around me. Look at my coworkers. Look at my neighbors. I'm way better than show up at church every Sunday. Show up on Wednesday night too. Bible class, worship, I'm there. I, I, I'm a pretty good person, so that's 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 good. I'm there. That's a deception that Satan's placed upon us. Another one that Satan deceives us with is is simply distraction. Pursuing things of no real value. We've, um, in our small group, we're looking at a a book entitled um, New Day uh, that Landon has suggested to us. And in one of the opening chapters, in chapter 2, it talks about um, the church being bogged down in either traditionalism or being challenged by theological liberalism. Both serious charges, but in some respects, distractions to the real point. We've been distraction by protecting our silos. This is the way we do things at this congregation, and all those other people out there are doing things wrong. It'd be getting bogged down in traditionalism, defending our positions, creating our silo, our bunker in which we live. We can be distracted by that. On the other hand, we can be distracted by going off and chasing after things that we really don't need to chase after in terms of our, what our faith structure is, what our belief structure is. And we can be distracted so much that we again lose sight of what we're really about as Christians. We can be complacent. Again, that kind of goes back to that rationalization. Rationalization may look more around us outside the church, but complacency is what happens in the building. Man, I showed up on Sunday, I'm good. That's it. I'm done. That's not what we've been called for. Not what we've been called for. And if we settle, if we settle, and and, and folks, if you feel your toes are getting stepped on, (laughs) I can't step on my own and keep balance right now, but I am. This, this sermon is for me uh, more than it is for you. Our challenge is real simple. What were Jesus' parting words? That's what we're supposed to be about. Showing up on Sunday morning to be strengthened and blessed by the presence of others is a great thing. Coming Wednesday evening and participating in Bible classes so, so we can get them be strengthened and edified and encouraged is a great thing. Participating in the community meal and being benevolent and serving people is a great thing. But guess what? None of those is the foundational thing of Christianity. The foundational thing of Christianity is this. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Have we lost sight of that do we really believe that is what we're all about anymore 
It's easy to come to church on Sunday morning. It's easy to sit in the pews. Unfortunately, for myself and probably for many of you, it's real easy to leave this building on Sunday morning and go about your activities for the rest of the week and give very little thought to what Jesus' parting instructions were to those apostles. I'm encouraged that there is a spirit in this congregation that I myself, the elders, and others in this congregation see building, see building in this congregation to do exactly this. I'm encouraged by that. So if, if you feel like I'm giving you a downer message up to this point, I want you to understand what's before us. There is a challenge before us. And that challenge is to be faithful to the charge of our Savior. To go out and make disciples. To go out and do his work in this community and in the world around us. I believe that's going to happen. I believe the foundation is being laid. But each and every one of us that's here needs to be a part of that. There's so much going on. There's, so, there's, there's a groundswell here. I, I hope and I pray that you'll feel it. I hope and pray that you'll get on board with it. Because there's things going on here. And it's going to happen. Are you going to be a part of it or not? Let me conclude with this thought. How do you make a disciple if you're not a disciple? There's two challenges there. First of all, you're not a disciple if you've never come to Christ. Secondly, you're not a disciple if you're not doing what Christ instructed you to do. That's the challenge for both of us, or for, for every single one of us in here. Have I become a disciple? Am I living as a disciple? I want you to contemplate on that. I want you to pray over that. I want you to consider your place not just in this congregation, but the kingdom as a whole. It's a disciple of Christ, as we're called to be.